Hello and welcome to the weekend update. It's Friday the 14th of April 2023 and it's a, it's a lovely day in Glasgow. Um, very nice, uh, a little bit sharp on the old wind but um, a, a nice day in general. Um, I'm joined today by our good friend Callum, Callum Gordon who's in Berlin. Hello Callum, how are you? I'm very good mate, thank you very much for having me. Of course, uh, it's really, let's just listen, it's, it's on everyone's lips, it's on everyone's minds. How how was it hanging out with Paul Carlin in Berlin? What was it like watching a game with him? Come on. It was it was an excellent experience. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and we didn't get beat, so he's allowed back. Otherwise, he was completely banned and never allowed, never mind back in the pub, but back in the city of Berlin. Jesus. But thankfully for him, it all turned out pretty well. And uh, it was a good day. Had a few few beers, good laugh. Um, obviously, the result helped. Um, and I really, really enjoyed it. It was good. Great stuff. Love, love to hear it. Just when I was in, uh, when me and Claire were in uh, the Berlin CSC, uh, we also won against Leipzig. So, unfortunately, Ryan Christie did score. So it doesn't count then. Uh, you have to, you know, disgusting. Um, just want to open up quickly by saying uh, we've got uh, our, our live show is on the twenty sixth of April. It's in Blackfriars. It's myself, uh, Alan Edgar, Barry Gallagher doing a live uh, Cynic Chronicles. Uh, the first batch of tickets is sold out. Um, so we've released a second batch of tickets. They will go pretty quick. So uh, if you want to get involved, um, the website link. Sorry, there's a link to the tickets on the website. Um, if you go to the writing section, uh, you click in there, and there's a link. We also have it on our Twitter, uh, so you can check out on our Twitter feed. And and if you can't if you can't access either either of those, if you email editor at the cynic dot co, I can send you a link. But the tickets are going fast. There's not many left. So uh, if you're planning to go, um, get involved. Uh, it's the Wednesday before the big uh, semi final, and we'll get you right in the mood. Um, should be fantastic. So check it out. Uh, yeah, links available. Um, just quickly before we kind of get deep in deep dive into the the stuff we've got planned out. How are you feeling about the semi? Um, I'm quietly confident and that's something that I've felt a lot with the Celtic team in, in recent months going into big games, especially derbies against them. You just have complete confidence um, in them now. You, you fully trust and you fully trust the team uh, and trust the, the sort of process that has seen us through. Um, you know, basically it's been a brilliant 18 months since and she came in, you have total faith in the team. Uh, and I'm generally never confident going into these games, you know, even if we're in good form and, and they're playing poorly. Um, you know, I've seen enough Hugo Egg overhead kicks for a lifetime and, and other weird, weird, weird performances and goals from that lot to ever yeah. fully sort of, you know, relax and think, you know, we're the better team. But I think it's clear we are the better team. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, Quietly, quietly confident without going overboard um, and a lot of that is down to, to Ange and this team and, and the way that they've sort of won over complete trust, you have complete faith in, in them going into any game domestically um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to it and it would be nice to to get it out of the way and get it through and sort of be able to really sort of savour the final few weeks of the season you know, with a cup final coming up uh, because you know, this is it's undeniably a, a very, very special Celtic side and a really special time to be um, a Celtic fan and you know I think that's the sort of last real hurdle um, before we can sort of really enjoy and celebrate the rest of the season so I'm looking forward to it quietly confident. Uh, Quietly confident is exactly how I'd put uh, how I'm feeling so 
good to see that there's a kind of um, consistency through the support with that. Um, also, it's weird that this fight... <laughs> Kind of like this semi-final is like our last big cup final of the season, if, if you know what I mean. Because if we win the semi-final, I'm going to always bet Celtic on a final, a, a domestic final. It doesn't matter who it's against. So, you know, and the opposition might be a little bit weaker. Not to take anything away from anyone who gets to a final. Genuinely, absolutely f- fantastic result for anyone in Scottish football because, you know, it's <laughs> weird results happen. But it's almost like this semi-final, get over that hurdle. And then you're kind of set up, but listen, we'll we'll, we'll come up, we'll come on to that more uh, as the kind of game gets nearer. Um, a couple of WhatsApps that we didn't get a, a chance to talk about yesterday. Uh, this one comes from Michael, who says, um, "This was for the the weekly, but obviously the the discussion kind of got a little bit. Um, we went over with stuff. Um, even guys, I hope you're all keeping well. Let's change that to morning um, or afternoon where you are, Calum Mover." Are you all concerned that we won't purchase a new keeper in the summer? Should we be concerned if Hart is still number one going into the Champions League? Do you have a realistic target that we might be able to go after all the best? Uh, Michael, uh, we're going to do a kind of scouting series probably in the summer. um, Potentially show what uh, the keepers are out there. Whether Celtic go for them or not is is a different (laughs) different kettle of fish. But um, we will have targets and we'll kind of do that hopefully kind of mid-June as we look ahead as Celtic do their business. How are you feeling about it, Callum? Uh, Joe Hart is a, you know, we've had a little, it's not been his best season. What's your thoughts? He's been, he's been okay. He's been unspectacular. Um, You know, you think at the end of the season is probably a good opportunity to, to bleed in a new keeper. Um, you really want to see, you know, none of us likes talking about Ange leaving or anything like that, but you, you look at him coming into his third season, you think this is the chance we really have to do something special under Ange Postacoglu because you don't know if you'll get a fourth or fifth and so on. Uh, and the way the team is sort of gelled together and the, the level of player we brought in and, you know, the level of player that I think we'll continue to have next season. You only you look at that t- team and think, you know, there's two or three areas that if we you know, get a real upgrade on. We could really do some damage. You just do some damage in in Europe as well, uh, and you kind of really want to see all, that all come to fruition. So, goalkeepers definitely, you know, number one on that list. I think, um, you know, I think it will be a big litmus test for the the general direction that the the club is heading in. You know, in previous years and under previous managers. They've been quite happy to sort of front load signings and just as you sort of seem to have the makings of a really good team, the spending sort of stops a little bit. Um, you sort of had your whack of money um, and then you're sort of rooting around in the bargain basement or loan market and so on. And yeah. you really want to see this team kick on uh, and, and Joe Hart sort of one key area that you think he can upgrade on. I don't think he's been terrible, but, you know, there's clear deficiencies to his game that would perhaps allow us to, to kick on to the, the next level. And just the basic thing of having a slightly better shot stopper, maybe gains you a few more points in Europe, uh, could be the difference between fourth in a Europa League place or, or so on. Um, so, yeah, I, I would hope so. Um in terms of who we would bring in, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of smart people at Celtic who are much better, you know, handling the market than I do. I know Ian Duggan mentioned Kelleher from Liverpool, but um, I've got a funny feeling that they'd want in excess of 10, 11 million for that. Uh, but there's value, there's value out there, you know. The the Croatia goalkeeper from the World Cup was one that stood out for me. He was incredible and was only playing at Dinamo Zagreb. So, you know, 
a fairly attainable level yeah. uh, of player for, for us. So, you know, not necessarily saying him, but, you know, there's plenty of good goalkeepers out there at that level who can, who will be making, looking to make a step up or certainly financially we can offer them something uh, alongside Champions League football. That's a pretty attractive offer. Uh, and I think the key thing is, you know, as well as improving on Joe Hart as a, a shot stopper, you want somebody obviously who, is a little bit better with the ball at her feet and, and can help sort of unlock that next stage in the side's development. Absolutely, man. We're really well put. And I would I would throw into the mix the fact that Rio Hitati is like our key, key player now. When he doesn't play, you, you think, you know, there's a, a an element of fear to that. Costs, what, one and a half million quid? No one knew who he was. You know, this is, if you do scouting well and you do it right, there are players out there, you know, and that's... Players who maybe we maybe don't see because the league that we're they're looking at maybe we don't get the chance to see. So yeah, absolutely couldn't agree more. Um, I I, I want to quickly go over. Uh, we didn't really touch on this uh, to the element we probably should have, but just the potential. Uh, Conroy said about an SPFL ref strike. Um, Scottish football has been warned. It's running the risk of another. Scottish football has been warned. Of course, Scottish football, the whole of Scottish football, all the leagues. Uh, it's running the risk of another referee strike by uh, Stephen Conroy. As I say, I said we mentioned this in the weekly yesterday, but I'll, I, I think we should maybe just touch on it a little bit. Um, yeah, the, the quotes are very. I can't get my head around why anyone would bother doing that kind of thing towards a referee. It's absolutely nuts. Well, I mean, if. Maybe that's the problem. Um, I know that these people are playing their own, playing to their own audience. But again, it's these people. But it's a dangerous thing to do. It doesn't matter what team you support. We all know there are people who will resort to what I would call unsavory tactics. At the least, provocation uh, is provocation. Um, the more it is stirred up, the more chance there is of that happen. It's all very, you know. We're we're going round the houses without actually saying it. Like, why can't they just say Rangers have a problem and Rangers have did this and Rangers are the yeah. There might be a ref strike because of Rangers, and I know what the answer is, but it's just quite frustrating, Cal. Yeah, I think uh, I think there's a, a general fear in in Scottish football of um, Rangers, their support, and it's simply you know, to call them out nine times out of ten as an individual, it's not worth the worth the hassle. Uh, so everybody tiptoes around the situation. Um, I mean, if you look at, you know, the, the landscape of Scottish football, one of, one of the few who continually did it and sort of was hounded out his job for it was, was Jim Spence. Um, but generally speaking, you know, I think if you're working within media, Scottish media, it's not, it's not worth it to sort of take on rabid hordes all by yourself. Yeah. Uh, so I understand why that framing and narrative happens, but it's it's equally frustrating when, you know, you've got a referee receiving, you know, threats to him and his family on his, you know, personal mobile phone and, and so on. And then you see it framed in the, the next day in the newspaper as, a, as an old firm problem, um, which, you know, to my knowledge, there's never really been a problem of Celtic fans threatening referees. There's a long list of people within Scottish society, not even just referees who've been continually threatened by Rangers fans uh, and worse over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, you know, you would think it would be high time for somebody 
to to call it out or the the media to wake up to the fact that there's a there's a clear sort of thread that runs throughout a lot of these things. Um, but at the same time, I can understand in the sort of goldfish of Scottish football and Scottish media why people yeah. don't attention to themselves. So as frustrating as it is, I do I do understand it because it's a it's a very toxic environment at the best of times. Um, having to deal with Rangers fans, so no, I I, I do get it. But um, in regards to referees, if they want to go on strike, let them. Let's send in those foreign scabs and get play on. Um, it's probably the only time I will advocate for breaking up strike action. But um, I don't think it would. It certainly wouldn't. You know, the level of officiating certainly wouldn't go down uh, if they were to bring bring in foreign referees like they did before. I know, absolutely. It's just just depressing. You know, it's really we keep. My whole life, your whole life, you know, most people that are probably listening, like referees, it's always been it's the same kind of conversation over and over and over again. And there we go. Uh, talking of uh, Rangers, uh, Rangers uh, coach Craig McPherson has been banned for six games after headbutting um, Fran Alonso post match. Um, Rangers women coach Craig McPherson has been banned for six games by the Scottish Football Association after headbutting and a really snidey headbutt as well absolute cowardly headbutt if you're going to headbutt someone headbutt them you know face don't headbutt someone go fill zidane if you're going to do it fill zidane fill zidane Zidane. Uh, rule 77 states uh team staff shall at all times act in the best interest of association football and prohibits the use of violent conduct serious foul play threatening abuse abusive indecent or insulting words or behavior um is six games enough for what he did um, I was a little surprised when I saw that yesterday when it was reported. Um, I would have assumed it would have been a lot longer. Um, I can't remember what it was for, but I remember Neil Lennon getting an eight-game eight touchline ban before. Uh, I don't think he stuck the nut on anyone. So it does seem a little bit out of kilter with what you would expect. You know, add into that the fact that, you know, you're wanting to develop the women's game in Scotland and, you know, develop its reputation um, and basically, you know, the what he did sort of brings up the very worst aspects of Scottish football and how you would want to try and develop and promote uh, a growing game um, to, you know, especially in swathes of new of a new audience. Um, no, it's it's unacceptable, and I was really really surprised that you know it was only six games. I thought it would have been a significant period. You know, six games to me is no real deterrent from from that happening again. It's a wrap on the knuckles. Uh, I don't know how much of that, how much feeds into it from, you know, the fact that he's apologised and, and and Fran Alonso basically said in the media that he didn't want him to be yeah. punished too, too harshly. I think that's probably fed into it and given, given the SFA a bit of an, an easy way out. Um because of Alonso's comments, but um, yeah, you know, talking about rabbit hordes, it's not just their fans, but their, their management teams as well. Um, you know, I'm shocked, a little bit shocked by it, but you know, nothing fully surprises you in Scottish football. Uh, their manager, Malky Thompson, right, firstly that. Secondly, he looks like a, like, Rangers regen of like a manager you know how like on football manager when you get a new player and it's just like they've taken all elements of staunch Rangersness and they've made this guy and they've put him in charge of the women's team and uh, they're pretty dirty as well and boring and rubbish so 
hate them. I hate them at all. I hate them at all levels. I mean, I know that's you... equal opportunities hatred. Absolutely, you want, you want it right across the board, right down to the youth team under fives. Oh, scum, scum. Can I can agree more? I've got I've got a really good uh, story about uh, someone uh, I know who played for the Rangers youth team, and I'll tell you off air. Okay, so, horrible. Um, right, okay, that's the kind of you know that's the Rangers part of the podcast. Anyway. And now we've got Kamarnock to talk about, so it's basically the same thing. Um, I just wanted to get your your thoughts on the so in the English Premier League yesterday, the Premier League announced following a consultation between the league, its clubs and the Department of Culture, Media and Sport as part of the government's ongoing review of current gambling legislations that there's going to be a ban on shirt sponsorship. If you actually look into the small print, it's just the front of shirt sponsorships. Um, eight English top flight clubs currently have gambling companies on the front of their shirts with an estimated £60 million per year. However, campaigners for a ban say gambling sponsorship in football uh, has normalised the industry and our tighter regulations is needed to protect children and other, and other vulnerable groups. Um, even after the Premier League ban, its clubs will be still uh, have featured gambling brands in areas such as shirt sleeves and LED advertising. LED advertising is just as bad, uh, probably worse. Um, but the Scottish Football Scottish Professional Football League has stressed to BBC Scotland, this is a report that was on BBC Scotland, that individual sponsorships are a matter for each club. There are no plans for a league-wide prescription of such deals. For many SPFL clubs, sponsorships from gambling companies is a significant source of income which helps to support their business models, enables investment in many other important community activities which clubs undertake. Three Scottish Premiership clubs, Celtic, Rangers and Dundee United, have sponsorships what's your thoughts what's your thoughts on the whole thing overall what's your thoughts on gambling within the game thoughts um you know i think it's i think it goes beyond football and it's a it's a wider sort of societal affliction that's you know certainly not great uh in the uk you know i think football would be a much healthier place um if you were to get rid of gambling sponsorship and you know it'd be something i'd be very much for you know, the way that it has the ability to ruin lives um, and the, the constant bombardment of watching a game of football. You know, I can only imagine if you're a recovering gambling addict or whatever, trying to watch a Champions League game in, you know, every two minutes, um, whether it's halftime adverts or the sleeve of a player's shirt or something on the advertising holdings. It's uh, it's relentless and, you know, it's... It's something that you would like to see slowly eradicated uh, from the game, but I say slowly because I don't think there's any quick or easy fix. It's so intertwined with the sort of the fabric of football now. Um, there's been such a focus on you know maximising profit at all costs throughout football for so long uh, that it becomes quite difficult to sort of disentangle various elements from it. Gambling's a key one. Um you know, in terms of Scottish football, it would be nice if, you know, we could sort of begin to, to make some strides on that and, and sort of begin to follow in the example of uh, the English Premier League. Uh, and Not only follow an example, but go a step further and, you know, remove the sleeves things and advertising holdings. But um, it's quite it's quite easy for English clubs to turn down that money because they have so many other sources of income and revenue um it's almost like a PR or branding exercise uh for them uh because they get the the goodwill of you know being seen to do something 
um, while still having, you know, countless other revenue streams that, you know, completely dwarf anything that you would find in, in Scottish football. So, you know, I have some sympathy there for, yeah. you know, Scottish clubs because, um, you know, having having that as your neighbours, it completely distorts the market uh, and, you know, what you can get in terms of uh, sponsorship. So I wouldn't be push, pushing Scottish clubs too hard to be the ones leading it necessarily. Um, because you know they do need to cut their cloth more accordingly. Um, but as a as a general football wide thing, it would be it would be great to see you know a concerted effort to remove it from the game because you know nobody, with the exception of unless you're a, a bookie or so on, um, you know nobody's life is improved by gambling, um, and it's not something that you know you need or want in the game really. Yeah, I, and you know I think I think you're right in regards to. To me, this just seems like a, an empty gesture. I'll be honest, just because you know, if you if you're watching match of the day, for example, and that's right on you, a big big telly, and it's on, like the LED stuff around the side, you see more than the strips. So, like, just from a, or, or if you're watching Sky, if you're watching a live game, if you're not even even at the games, like those advertising hoardings where I sit at Celtic Park, right? You can mm. see the players, but you can't really see that much detail in regards to their strip or anything, right? But I see all of the advertising hoardings all around and adverts are coming up on the screen and all that. Like, it's a bit of an empty gesture for me. Um, is it a step in the right direction? Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give them that. But, you know, Scottish football has a, has very much has a tendency just to fall in line with uh, English football maybe six months to a year later. So there is a chance I think something will happen. And I, I, I'm with yourself, Callum. I have a lot of sympathy with, with clubs that, you know, it's a ma- massive revenue stream. You know, someone like Dundee United, who it's their main sponsor, um, them just saying, the SFA just saying, right, you have to get a new sponsor now and that's it. Like, that's just not going to work. It's not practical. But someone like Celtic, I think, if Celtic, again, we can come back to what what the board actually think of the supporters and what the board think of making money and, you know, what's the actual value of what the club's doing and stuff. You know, one hand doesn't wash the other when it comes to the community and, you know, the foundation stuff with, you know, the gambling and the, the alcohol stuff. So what I would say is if Celtic, I think it would be a good gesture if Celtic went, we're just going to change our sponsor. Because you can't tell me that Celtic, who are in, going to be in the Champions League next season, who are going to get exposure from a European-wide uh, point of view, aren't an attractive shirt sponsor. Do you know what I mean? Like, can we not get a, a shirt sponsor that just isn't betting? Do they care? There's a brewery just down the road that I could interest you in, but <laughs> Peter Lowell searched the world and managed to find the the sponsor for a kit for a few years, just a few miles down the road. Um, you know, no, no, I completely agree with you. you know, Celtic is a, is an attractive global brand. I'm sure there's plenty. Um, you know, when right after you know we played uh, Real Madrid away in the Champions League last year, I was away for work in Tokyo, and they have these big, big um, these big screens up around the city um, that basically flash up news throughout the day. Uh, and the following day on like all of these they have like a little sports uh, sports roundup um, you know there's images of Dyson Maeda coming up against Real Madrid you know dotted all over the city of Tokyo and so on um, which was quite cool to see just you yeah. know generally while, while you're away from home but Amazing. you know there is 
there's a huge opportunity there with the sort of growing number of Asian players we have and sort of to make strides in that market or do something that's a little bit more innovative and interesting than a gambling company or, you know, tenants or carling or whoever um, that always seem like quite safe and easy bets, you know. Uh, I'm sure there's, you know, if if we really looked for it, you know, we could pitch ourselves as quite an, an attractive, exciting club um, to a host of companies that perhaps don't bring with them the the moral dilemma of, you know, the the product that they're pushing. Um, and I, I'm sure that would be possible and it'd be great to see Celtic take the lead on it. But the the way we envision the club as fans is, I think, I feel is often quite different with the exception of the great work the foundation do uh, to how the people within the club sort of view it and view it as a business. Couldn't agree more, man. That's so frustrating. Um, but yeah, Again, this is something I think that will come up over over the next wee while, something I think we'll probably discuss and uh, dissect. So, yeah, good points. Um, I just want to quickly touch on the UK and Ireland's bid for the Euros. Um, we, we won't spend too long on this, but... Um, so, UK and Ireland's bid for Euro 2028. Um, it's up against Turkey, is the other kind of uh, bid. So, it's the Republic of Ireland, uh, Scotland... Uh, Wales, Northern Ireland, and uh, England. Uh, there's 10 stadiums, one Scottish stadium, one Irish stadium. What? <laughs> is this just... It just seems wild that the fact is they're putting this bid together. No one's guaranteed to qualify, which is the absolutely one of the big parameters, the big exciting parameters of, you know, hosting it. Why are England just not going alone on this? Um, it's a good question. Um, maybe it's to to seem a little bit more inclusive, or or, or also, you know, um, I think UEFA have enjoyed having you know tournaments split over a few locations and stuff like that, which is, I guess, easier to get to and spreads the wealth around a little bit. But I don't quite understand it. You know, I don't. In general, it feels like. England and they'll let others tag along seem to just churn out bids for every single competition uh, going. Um, you know, we, it was only a couple of years ago that we had, you know, large phase of the Euros hosted at Wembley and in, in, in England and so on. Um, the, and maybe, it's, maybe it's just me, but the, the, the thought of it doesn't particularly excite me. Um, I'd much rather see See a tournament hosted somewhere more interesting. Turkey sounds more interesting, you know. I always think the the beauty of international tournaments is, you know, taking football to a different part of the world and then having the sort of their opportunity to to really celebrate the game there and have their moment in the sun. And um, you know, off the back of the the last Euros, I don't think there's a, any real need or appetite to have you know another tournament hosted with a lot of English venues and a couple of others dotted around. Um, so for me, it holds no real interest, and um, you know, I think Turkey would be much, much more exciting as just as a as a neutral football fan. Um, but you know, I, I think the the English and their, their thirst for bringing in tournaments and the the money that comes with it, um, part of, I think that's part of the sort of post Wembley redevelopment is they're, they're really on it with these things and want to constantly bring in any opportunity that they can. Um, so I think they'll bid for just about anything. But yeah, I would, I'd rather see it some somewhere else, somewhere a bit more exotic. Than... 
you know, south side of Glasgow and Wembley. Just Hamden. Yeah, get, get, get Hamden, you fuck, man. It's... I've got a ticket for the semi. I've been. I was at the semi in the, the League Cup final, and you know I've been going to Hamden, you know, for for fucking since nineteen ninety four, and it's just not fit for purpose. For it's just a very unenjoyable venue to watch football. No, almost no matter where you sit. What's your kind of thoughts on Hamden? Uh, as a stadium, it's it's terrible. Uh, the view is bad. The atmosphere is bad. Even if you've got you know fifty thousand in there singing along and so on it, the noise doesn't really carry well um you know view is terrible you know the facilities aren't great um don't think it's a particularly impressive looking stadium and it feels like we're just stuck with it um for the time being you know i'm i know there was opportunities in, in recent years to potentially move away or look to murrayfield or whatever which i wasn't fully on board with either yeah um but I think, you know, the, the ultimate solution and the one that people don't want it to admit because it's going to cost a lot of money is there's a need for a new, much improved national stadium. Um, Hampton is a bit tired and, you know, I don't, don't think it does anything particularly well. Um, you know, obviously we have great memories there, especially stretching back over the last five, six, seven years of winning a lot of trophies and, you know, a lot of great victories, uh, and in that regard, it's always you know a great day out and really enjoyable, and you have good memories of going there. But as a as an actual experience for a national stadium, you, it's it's pretty poor. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. Like I just, I not knock it down, I knock it down. And by the way, see why you're knocking stuff down. There's another one you can knock down. <laughs> There's another dump. Well, they do less of Hamden by mistake. <laughs> Uh, um, former Celtic striker Will, uh, Lisbon, and Lisbon Lion Willie Wallace uh, believes Kyogo Furuhashi could beat him to the 50 goal mark um, Willie Wallace is a name that uh, I have had my dad talk about to me for years um, obviously he came in, signed him from Hearts uh, he scored a ridiculous amount of goals um, I think he got injured around him and, I think it was him and Joe McBride were playing for Celtic in that, that season and they were both just rattling in the goals um willie wallace is just an, an amazing player uh, who knew, knew how to score goals he's in his 80s now i think he's living down in australia um just some quotes about kyogo when i first saw kyogo i thought he would be a jinky type forward he's small quick full of skill and he can finish too he's been out, outstanding for Ange and celtic kyogo hasn't taken long to get close to that 50 mark and he deserves to join all the great players in doing that He's not the biggest and he has to take a lot of rough tackles and fouls, but you never see him complaining. He just gets on with it. I watch him play and I don't have any fear. He's just determined to keep scoring. Teams have tried different ways to stop him, but he's really clever and he's also the man for the big occasion. Five goals in the last three games against Rangers and they've all been important ones. When you have big players like that who can produce in the biggest games, it's massive for any team. There's a a really nice interview with him. I I can't remember what what it was, but I read it over the last couple of days and really enjoyed his quotes and you know talking about his, his experience at Celtic um, obviously you, your dad uh, is, a, is a fantastic journalist I don't know if he's, he's obviously knows a lot about the Lisbon Lions is he spoke to you about Willie Wallace or those guys or do you get that passed down to you as well just um, Willie Wallace not so much Bobby Lennox was always his hero and the one that he continually would go on about um, <laughs> yes. to this day it's still he still just about outranks Henrik um, <laughs> yes. for him um, so it was quite it was quite nice during COVID a couple of years ago it was his birthday and I managed to get 
through someone get in touch with uh, Bobby Lennox and got him to send like a, a video message to him. So even though, despite my dad's getting getting on a bit, you know, just getting a voice voice message from your, your hero, uh, no matter what age you are, you know, it was still made. He was delighted with it. Um, so I know that it was it was always Bobby Lennox for him, but no, obviously, well, he was great great goal scorer. Um, and can only really sort of echo what he said. You know, Kyogo has became such a talisman for this side in a way that even six months ago you didn't. You know, you always thought Kyogo was a great domestic goal scorer, but you weren't sure if he was going to quite kick on to that next level and you know begin scoring in those big games. You know, you had the League Cup final from last year that you could point to as evidence of him doing that, particularly when he only really had one leg for the majority of the game, but. Um, he's really, he's really kicked on. Um, he just seems a lot calmer in front of goal in, the, in recent months. You know, you can tell he's got his confidence back a little bit. Um, I think at the start of the season, you'd seen Kyogo snatch a lot of chances, big chances in the uh, in the Champions League, and that's just down to you know confidence. You know, when you're when you're feeling good about yourself, you take that brief millisecond to relax a little bit more and decide what you're what you're going to do in front of goal. Um, and I feel you know now that Kyogo's got that or got that back because he certainly had it last season. Um, you're just hoping that he can maintain it now and kick on. Um, you know, I'm sure he'll pass the 50 goal mark uh, fairly soon, and I think you'd be looking for him to hopefully hit the mid 30s uh, goal wise for the for his tally for the season, um, and then it you know sets up really nicely, hopefully for the Champions League next season, and f- for him to really go out there and prove a point to you know fans, Japanese manager, and so on uh, that he's a top player and can really cut it at elite level. And then he gets his hat-trick in the first game of the, the Champions League and uh, the game was mine, as Bigby yeah. says. Um, right, uh, let's kind of uh, look at, obviously we're, play, we're playing Kamarnock, so we'll have a look at them, but let's go to the opposition analysis. I am joined, as always, uh, when we do our opposition analysis by our opposition analysis, sir. It's Christian Wolf. Hello, Christian. Uh, hello, Christopher. Th- thank you for that uh, rousing welcome. Yes, I am the official position analysis and official team analysis. I am the I am the analysis. You are the analysis. I am uh, the analysis. It's a delight to have you here, as always, Christian. Um, Lesser known Will Smith movie. <laughs> I am analysis. Um, I am legend was terrible. Um, good book. I, I, I disagree. Oh, I kind of liked it. We're not going to no. do that now. Um, okay. Absolutely not. They're remaking it. Oh wow! No, no, tell, not. Tell, 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 tell you what they should remake: Star Wars one, two, and three. Yeah. Hey. Well. Cr- cr- chronologically, obviously. No, sorry. Well, timeline one, two, and three. All right. So. Hello and welcome to the Opposition Hi. Analysis. Sorry, I should have started this on a Chris Bell pod because <laughs> he loves Star Wars. That's what he likes. Um, so. Let's talk about the weekend. So we've got uh, Kilmarnock at Rugby Park just down the road from yourself. Um, 20 minutes, okay, yeah. Yeah, so just down the road. Is yeah. is this is this a good game post-Derby? Um, with the we talked in the weekly about uh you know greg taylor and obviously we need him really fit and firing for that semi-final um we can answer all these questions but is this a is this a good game for a, a post derby match yes I, I kind of thought so christopher but then then i dug into the stats a bit 
And th- th- there's a couple of things in there that that makes me worried. But it it, it kind of came up with one of those, I, I guess, one of those facts we, we think are true. And, and it starts kind of backing up around Kimura. So I, I was thinking, uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Don't you worry. And also, I, thought, uh, I kind of read through my notes um, the last couple of games against Kamarnock. And unfortunately, we, me and myself and Graham, we were kind of impressed by them in terms of like like the defensive block and, and how they set up. So, I mean, we can get stuck into it. But overall, I was like, ah, actually, it's, this might not be the best game to have right now, Kamarnock away. But, um, I mean, you know, long story short, Celtic turn up, they'll win, you know, especially if they can break the dock early as we've seen before but yeah i'm a, a little bit apprehensive uh so. yeah the last couple of games uh obviously we played them in uh the league cup semi-final that was a 2-0 victory and we played them literally just what a couple of days before a, a week before um, yep. at celtic park and that was a 2-0 victory so it's not like we've you know there are some teams who we we've turned over at celtic park uh, a couple of times not even just the once but Kilmarnock seemed to you know as you say, maybe have that defensive block. Let me ask you this question. Is this a typical Derek McInnes side or is it some sort of hybrid or is he doing his usual stuff or is something different? I think, well, let's take your trip back. I, yeah, I, I think on the, the first game of the season, the final at Rugby Park, it was very much a Derek McInnes like we saw Aberdeen because he's very man-marking. And Celtic was very effective that day, you know, it was five nil. I don't think, you know, it's, it's just one of those days when a lot of the chances go in, like Jotters, you know, um, <laughs> long range. I think it was two overhead kick, yeah, goals in that. But, but two players, two players have left the club as well. Um, funnily enough, but but I think in in the two games in January, it, it seemed to be a little bit, you know, a bit more clever in terms of that block because they've gone back to a, a back five and. There's a couple of things within that that I thought was, you know, something face a lot of teams with that kind of same 5-3-2. But Kamarnock did a couple of things, I thought, that made that system a bit more effective. So it was, I mean, we can, we can maybe start here in terms of yeah. tactically and then why I think the game specifically on Saturday combined with that is so maybe not great. But as I said, yeah. You saw a big change from that first league game because the final. Meal, tell you what, you're not going to believe this. Kamarco went with a back four, Oof. which I'm, I know sounds weird. And um, any other team that is playing a back four, but they did very man marking Celtic. I don't think Celtic was actually at their best that day, but they just kind of pulled them everywhere. But you had that league game in, in January, and again. We saw a lot of the things we've seen from other teams. Um, but uh, going back, this is kind of what right at the start of that round of all the teams starting to do in five at the back against Celtic as well. They put Amanda McGregor, mm-hmm. one of the front two, and they obviously had that midfield tree. But then if you have Celtic's two number eights and then the two fullbacks, often Celtic gets kind of a line of four there. But Kimarnock again, very, very aggressive in moving one of those kind of centre-backs up into the midfield line so they have that covered. And those two things we've seen, you know, covering McGregor with one player, having the third centre-back jump up so, you know, you don't give Celtic a free man in the midfield line. We've seen that. 
But what Kimonov did both in that home game and then the League Cup semi-final, I thought they did it slightly different than a lot of the other teams. They were a bit more aggressive and compact both vertically and horizontally. And what I essentially mean by that is that they pushed the back line maybe not much up further above, maybe five, ten yards further up than a lot of other teams. So there's less space between the defensive line and the midfield line. So they're very aggressive and jumping up and down. So it doesn't give Celtic a lot of space between those lines. But the other thing they do is like when they have those back five, and if Celtic is going down, say like the left-hand side, um, maybe not right on the wing, but, you know, in the half spaces, Chris, you know, Greg Taylor coming in. Often like they're, say it's Jota, Jota on the right wing, he would be, you know, keeping with way out. And he, that often then is that, say, Kamarnov's left wing back would stay out with Jota, right? So he would be close to him. But what Kamarnov did with their kind of wing back, even if the ball was coming down Kamarnov's right-hand side, the left wing back would, would stay very narrow, mm. right? So you would keep, even in the middle of the pitch, so you, you have maybe Celtic swinger like Jota, half of side of the pitch free, but I think they did that so to kind of again compress the space, right? So they, they push up, but they also push Celtic into one side. So it was very difficult for Celtic to try and find those spaces because you know it was pushed up vertically and horizontally. So they did that well, especially in, in, in the home game. But I remember reading through my notes um about earlier from that game and they did really well for 30, 35 minutes. As soon as they slip up a little bit, Celtic find that Greg Taylor in that half space on the left-hand side. The ball's moved over. There's that gap between the fullback and the wingback of Kilmarnock. Ball comes in. Things may yet end that game. Cross, 1-0. So you can do that well against Celtic for 30, 35 minutes. And as I said, Kilmarnock did a couple of things within that 5-3-2 book that it's ambitious, it's aggressive. And when it works... It gives you very little space on the ball, very little, very little time on the ball, very little space to receive the balls. So, in terms of that, I think Tomorrow's McGuinness had kind of done his homework defensively because overall it worked probably as, as well as he could do against Celtic. Are they going to set up exactly like that, you think, or will there be anything different? I was thinking about this earlier, and I think they will have been happy. With what they did overall defensively, like, attacking wise, like it's just they're hoping for a set piece essentially, or, or or a big counter attack. You do wonder if they had a look at the derby at the weekend, and they saw that Rangers very much prioritised covering the two fullbacks and Celtic's two number eights as well, and. Obviously, Rangers could do that by putting one of the two front strikers on McGregor, which Kilmarnock, I think, will do again, but then have a midfield four to cover Celtic's two number eights and the two fullbacks. Obviously, Kilmarnock will go with a... You presume they will go with a back five, and the way they cover those two Celtic number eights, two fullbacks, is by pushing that centre-back. But you you do wonder if he's going to try and have a look at that and go... Should we do something different? Should we maybe not play a back four, but maybe put three at the front? Have one, the striker, maybe 
a McGregor or kind of covering the fullbacks by two wide strikers like St. Johnston did. But I don't think you see, I reckon you're still going to see a back five. But I think you will see, again, them being quite aggressive, compressing the space both up and down the pitch and across the pitch. Because I don't know if you know, Christopher, because this game is on a quite small artificial pitch. So, so that might play into it, which it has for Gamanotis. Do you think, um, of, I'm just looking at kind of their recent results. In the last nine games, they've won a two. And I mean, one was against Hearts and Hearts <laughs> currently are, you know, obviously that cost Nielsen his job. And the game before that was a 1-0 victory um, against Dundee United, which was back in a kind of early March. Oh, sorry, a early February. Um, otherwise, you're looking at defeats and draws. Uh, I know they had uh, they had uh, Dundee United in the, the Scottish Cup to beat them as well. But like, uh, is this a is this a team that are very much? I mean, doesn't look like they score goals. What, Rangers, Rangers at the weekend, we saw cause Celtic a lot of problems from set pieces. Is that essentially what they're going to try and do to us? So, I, well, I, I think teams spend so much energy and focus on stopping Celtic and not get hammering that you end up so low or you start your attacks from such a position that unless you get a a really lucky, not a lucky counter, but Celtic is a mistake or you get a counter. And it's set pieces, really. But Kilmarnock is really interesting. Um, a couple of things stats-wise. So, obviously, they're, as I said, I think they're uh, 10th in the league now. And if you look at all the underlying stats, you kind of go, like, for example, they have the worst goal difference in the league. But in terms of XG difference, they're sixth in all the kind of stats. Otherwise, it's very bang in the middle. Like offensively, XG created in shots eighth. XG conceded shots against seventh. In terms of possession-wise, how much many passes they have, how much possession they have, seven, eighth. Pressing around the same. And the main thing they're struggling with is essentially, for, for instat, have them created... 38 expected goals, but they've scored 24, Oof. right? And XG per shot, for example, still it's eighth, but it, it, I think it's one. I think so. It's partly that they have been creating chances, but overall the season, they just haven't been able to convert a lot of, of them. And that kind of, you know, Steve Ross's expected goal table has Michael Marduk in eighth. You know, so yes, overall, they're probably a little bit better than the results kind of will say. But then I kind of had to, it just on the off chance, you know, stats, stats are wonderful. Christopher, you go down one road and suddenly something comes up. And maybe people will know this as well. But if you look at their away form, it's horrendous, right? Played 16, lost 14. Oh, Jesus. Two draws. Not one away, two points. The second worst team away is Dundee United, which got eight points away. Kamara's got two. Then you, then you flip it and look at the home table. Sixth, right? So they're taking 26 points from 15 games, seven wins, five draws, only lost three times. And yeah, obviously, you know, points, goals. Do I trust them? 
Not always, Christopher. So I had to look at kind of just the XG for and against home games and away games. Again, it's the same story. Like XG created away, worst in the league. XG conceded away, second worst in the league. So XG difference at away, second worst in the league. We detoured, you know, who's got the worst XG difference away, Christopher, of any team in the league? Rangers. <laughs> that would have been great. It's Aberdeen. <laughs> it's Aberdeen. Um, but then you got like, okay, how's Kilmarnock performing at home, even away from points? And again, the sixth best XG created at home, the fourth best XG conceded at home. So overall, underlying stats has Kilmarnock as the fourth best home team in the league. And they're only the 0.40 XG difference positive per game. Aberdeen is in third, 0.41. So essentially, they and Aberdeen are tied as the third best home team in the league. They're just terrible, terrible away. So that I think coupled with that, Christopher, and the fact that the things they've been doing well within that 5 3 2, a big pitch of Hampton, a big pitch of Celtic Park, it's compressing the space, pushing the defensive line a bit, up a bit, keeping the space between those lines tight. Yeah, yeah. And also, as we talked about, the far side wing back, pressing that in as well. So there's not much space vertically, there's not much space horizontally. Add an artificial pitch into that, that is smaller as well. You kind of go, this is not you know, with their home record as well. So it's it's not I, I could have picked another game just here, but hey, it's a challenge. It's hey, listen, and that's that's kind of what we're after. Um and obviously the you know the pitch takes care of itself. There's no point going overall ground. We've we've mentioned it a number of times, we know what it does. Um are they a physical side? This Kilmarnock side, is that you know, is that how you'd ca- categorize them or are they better than that? Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's they're such a non-entity in in one way. Like I tried to look a bit at the like recent Rangers games and Aberdeen game, and you kind of go, you don't really know. It's a standard team, you know. I wouldn't say they're any more physical than other teams. It's, it seems a clear lack of like any standout players as well. And as I said, I would have to dive deeper into see what's happened up front in terms of. They're creating chances, but they haven't been taking them. A lot of that will be, you know, random variants. Be interested to see what kind of chances they create within that, and yeah, I mean, the I'm- strikers are doing so. It's you kind of kind of get the feeling that, and I think with McInnes for I, I don't think he's a great coach or anything, but it's always he's working with quite limited materials as, as well. But there is that huge shift between home and away games. So if if I was that way inclined, Christopher, if I was a Kilmarnock analyst, it would have been interesting to kind of jump into what are they doing at home that they're not doing away. But, you know, life's too short to be that. So. <laughs> Very good. I'm just like, just looking at goals, though. Like um, Danny Armstrong, wide right, seven goals. Then it's like the two centre-backs. And yeah. they, then, it, then it's Christian Doig, who was uh, formerly of, of uh, Hibs, has got two goals. You know, it, it appears obviously that goal scoring isn't necessarily their forty. What? Okay, let, let, look at it from a Celtic point of view. We know how we set up. We know how we play. Obviously, there's tweaks all over the place with that system. 
what would you what do you think like obviously Greg Taylor you know it's an artificial pitch former Camargo player Greg Taylor he knows the town yeah he knows the city he um, knows the pitch yeah but you know obviously he was targeted by Rangers on, on Saturday got a couple of bad knocks and we do want him fit for that derby do you play him in this game hopefully he gets through it and then you can rest him for the Motherwell game at home because obviously bigger pitch more out of advantage or what would you do with Taylor at this point so remind me what's the Motherwell game because it's it's a week it's on Saturday it's a week on Saturday yeah no it's I keep thinking there must be a midweek game soon but I think that's after After the split split. yeah yeah see I think if it's a if it's a game away he plays It, it seemed like based on what you know, happening around the game he was off midweek and the Scotland team that they kind of just keeping an eye on. I think, I think, but yeah, you do want, I guess, I like reading back my notes from the League Cup final. And one of the things is when, see, when Kimarnik pushes their lines, so there's less space. I think essentially what you need to do is try to arrive in those kind of half spaces between the lines quicker, right? You, you don't really have that first just two, three seconds when you're building up. See if, if the opening's there, you have to try and hit it, right? You, you move that ball from the back line into those spaces a little bit quicker. And I think, you know, I think David Turnbull was in the first game. There were some issues I thought, especially in the league of final one kind of, Celtic went in a way like it's hard to explain, like arriving in those pockets, maybe two, three seconds too late. And by too late, I mean the space was already then closing in. Yeah. And you, you, you may be two, three seconds late from finding a next pass and stuff like that. So I think it's just Celtic just needs to be sharp in the build up, right? And they need to hit, you know, the number eight that runs between the midfield line, the defensive line, and don't hesitate around it because. I think what you'll see is those spaces closing in quickly. So you can end up in a situation where you arrive somewhere and then all the passing lanes are there. Kamara's got one more man, more than you. It's not a space. You go back to the centre-backs, you go over to the other side. So I think it's actually quick, sharp passing in the build-up. You will arrive in certain spaces and then it's just a one, two seconds. One, two seconds arriving in a little space, you then go, you say to the centre-back, are you going to jump out? Because if you jump out, I can hit Mayeda. If you're not going to jump out, I can challenge you and stuff like that. So, sharpness in the build-up. And I think that's absolutely key here. Fantastic. Um, kind of final points on it. I mean, as you know, we, we mentioned on the weekly, you know, Iwata impressed so much that you'd potentially go with Iwata, O'Reilly and, and McGregor. Do you think that Iwata and McGregor is kind of, they're starting to kind of develop a sense of you know one step out one step in maybe do you think this is the game for it or is this how do you think that'll work I, I, I really like Devata uh, at the derby I think he's got I think in the first few games he was maybe a bit overly safe in the passing but I, I think now he's he's getting into that rhythm I we talked about this on, on the review on Tuesday I, I love the way he tries to move to receive the ball from the centre-backs and from the fullbacks, he he runs across that pitch two three times, and he, he's he's he has that off the ball movement. Whereas Mike Cal McGregor has that as well, but I, he's often a bit more. He wants to stay in the middle, so have somebody like that who kind of moves deep, he moves across wide. 
I think that kind of fits in because it, it is not exactly like a Rio Hatate, but Hatate does that as well. He, he, if he doesn't get the ball, he can move wide and deep. I think Ivata has, has a lot of that as well. So in terms of giving the centre-backs options on to find a passing option straight away in the full-backs, I think that can be useful. And, it, and it, you know, I, I love Matt O'Reilly, so if he starts, it's it's all good. All good, Barney. It's all good. All gravy. Um, listen, awesome, as always. Uh, we'll hear more from you on the review on Tuesday as you look back on this game, what hopefully a momentous victory. But Christian Wolf, pleasure as always. Pleasure as always, mate. Great stuff from Christian there. As always, uh, opposition analysis looking at Kilmarnock uh, from a tactical and stats point of view. Um, how are you feeling about this game? It's Kilmarnock Rugby Park, uh, Sunday, 12pm kickoff. What's your thoughts? Is this a good game to have after the derby? Um, I'm always a wee bit wary of away games after the derby win uh, because I feel like if you take your eye off the ball, you can undo a lot of the, the good work and hard work that you've done the week previously. So hopefully there's no complacency. But like I said, you know, I'm very, you know, trusting in this Ange side. Uh, now you, you turn up and fully expect them to, to go do the business. And for me, certainly league-wise for the rest of the season, it's about, you know, like I said, really savouring it and, and enjoying it because... Um, we are watching a special team and I don't think we'll fully appreciate how special it is and, and until we have the benefit of hindsight. Um, but, you know, after last weekend's result, it removes any sort of nagging doubt um, and you can really sort of enjoy it now. Um, and I hope we continue to really put on a show for the for the remainder of the season and kick on and break records. And, you know, that needs to be the, I think the real focus or motivation of this side now to to go out and just see how far they can they, they can push it because you know I'm sure they won't acknowledge it publicly but you know the league's wrapped up um so now it's about going and doing it in style. Um and I hope that you know the, the players and the management and so on can can enjoy the sort of final period of the season as well and you know see where it takes us. Um but you know for a few months now I've had a an inkling that this could be a really, really special season and it's unfurling quite nicely um, and it's nice to have sort of hit that point now where the league's wrapped up and you can um, you know, look forward to Celtic games without any sort of trepidation or, or jeopardy or you don't need to be watching out for their results because ultimately it doesn't matter because they fucked up. They absolutely fucked it. They've embarrassed themselves in front of T-Bone. Uh, that's, that's clear for all to see. I actually just... I've. I, didn't realise. Let me just check who they've got. I know that. I know I should probably know that, but doesn't um, matter, Chris. It, it doesn't matter. You're right. It doesn't bloody matter. But let's have a look. Uh, oh, fucking St. Mirren at home. Okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> but they're, I think they're playing Aberdeen next week. Uh, they're playing Aberdeen next week, twenty third of April, at Pitodry. Beautiful. Um, nice. So I mean. They are, forget them, as you say, forget them, just focus on us. Um, if you look at this game, obviously um, I still have that little niggle about Rugby Park because um, it cost us points. It's cost us points at various times over the last kind of you know contemporary years. And, you know, Dermot McInnes being the manager, you kind of know what you're going to get. Christian did a good kind of overview of, of how they're going to play. They're going to be kind of compact. They're going to be tight. They're going to try and really frustrate is um there's you know i think Ange made it clear this week this pre- obviously the press conferences is af- 
is this afternoon and he'll give you a lot more kind of detail on you know who's going to be available and, and and stuff like that but he did kind of make it clear that anyone who wasn't involved last weekend won't be involved and obviously the main name coming from that is is Rio Hatati um obviously Moy didn't have the best game um against Rangers um and it's going to take him some time to kind of get back up to speed it appears if he's kind of dropped off or he's got a little bit of an injury which you can understand because of his age and stuff who would you be looking to drop into that midfield? I'm doing this thing where I'm going from side to side. I don't know what it is. Uh, who, who would you be looking to drop into midfield? Because McGregor will play probably more than more than likely on more than likely O'Reilly will play because he, he performed pretty well in the derby. Um, who would that third jersey be? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, if you go on form alone, I think you have to go with that. I thought he was good when he, when he came on last week. Uh, did a power run and used the ball generally pretty well. Um, it would also just be nice to see more of him from a from a starting position because we've seen him come on to sort of close out games uh, or give people a rest. Um, but he's only had the one start so far, and you know he has so many exciting elements to his game. He's technically good, but he's also you know really really strong and looks like a strong runner as well. Um, you sort of want to. You know, now now that the league is sort of wrapped up, there is part of you that sort of begins to think about next season and what you know how the squad might take shape and where where people are going to play and how that midfield might work. If you've got Iwata in there and Cal McGregor, and if it's more of a double pivot, um, or you know if Iwata is pushed forward into the eight, you know these things become you know a little bit more tangible now because you might actually see them in the final weeks of the season and yeah. I'd be really interested to see it you know with that said if Aaron Moy starts I'm, I'm not going to be angry about it I thought he was terrible last week he had a had a really poor game um, but you know that's no cause to throw somebody under the bus you know I think over the course of the season uh, Aaron Moy has been more than good value for money uh, I think he, he's performed very very well domestically um, and it could you know, with a quite stodgy defence uh, away at Kilmarnock, it could actually be the kind of game where um, he can excel in. Um, so I'm not too, too bothered, but, you know, part of me is you just want to see the, the shiny new thing, and that's still Iwata just now. Um, we've sort of seen what Aaron Moy can do, and maybe with an eye on the um, on the semi-final as well, you maybe want to see how that Iwata, Cal McGregor, O'Reilly midfield works a, a little bit better, so at least you know your your options for it. Um, and I think that will be in the back of Andrew's mind a little bit as well, because, you know, that is the that is the real remaining, like we said, the remaining big game uh, in our season that we've got to go. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, um, you know, Ange consistently keeps going back to Moy for a reason, you know, because he trusts him and he thinks, he's, you know, he knows he's going to do his job for him. But, I mean, the game against Rangers was comically bad. Like, if you'd put clown music around his performance, it wouldn't have been out of place. And I'm a I'm a big Moy fan, but, you know, I you just have to go, hands up, jeez, oh, what a terrible game. But that's not to say that he, he won't play against, jeez, oh, what a terrible game. What a fucking stupid thing to say. It was a terrible game, didn't it? I know, but I just mean, I just, more about how I said it, Callum. Aye, but I, mean, I, was, I was giving you an out there, but nah, you nah. self-flagellate. That's fine, mate. Listen, I've been self-flagellating. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> don't know what that was. Uh, looking at that forward line, um, obviously Kyogo's in terrific form. Um, Jota again, obviously in ter- terrific form. I would look at Maeda, and I would think: Is this game built for him? 
just in regards to they're probably going to be quite a, a low block. They're probably going to be quite constricted and kind of contained. Okay, I'm just going to hit everyone with some Haxabanovich uh, propaganda, as I always do. Um, I don't know. I, ju- I just think maybe if you were to change it this week uh, and you were to make, and I'm sure that Ange probably wouldn't want to make more than what two changes maybe he's he's not one to make he either goes big and he makes eight changes or it'll be one or two so i think awata is more than likely to start um haxabanovich for maida is that and that's not being critical of maida at all i, th- I thought he i thought he had a, a good game um against Rangers, maybe a little bit ineffective in the final third but i thought i thought he played well um but I don't know. What, what's your thoughts on, on that front? Dave? Would you just keep it as it is or would you mix it up a little bit? I mean, I think we all want to see a little bit more of Hak Zabarovic because it's clear that there's a there's a very talented player there and, you know, he he was in great, you know, great form before the World Cup and now he's only getting, you know, 20 minutes here and there and, you know, that's through no real fault of his own. He's been, you know, pretty good when he came in uh, and he's not had... A whole load of starts, with the exception of um, Hearts in the Cup. Uh, so I wouldn't be against it. That I think the the instinct going away to these grounds, like Levy or Kelly with plastic pitches and so on, is to always go for more technical players who can handle the ball on that surface. Uh, but sort of maybe counterintuitively, Ange is you know when he's managed to get results away at Levy or so on. Um, in the in the past, you know, he's often gone for a more robust lineup. You know, whether it's Anthony Ralston at right back, Dyson Maida, you know, pressing them high, and I think we tend to go a little bit more direct on these parks. Um, you know, look to get the ball forward and then force turnovers and so on, um, and get them, you know, you know, attack the opposition when they're not in their sort of set defensive shape. Uh, you know, and then if we do do that, you know. Dyson Maida plays into that perfectly, so I wouldn't be surprised at all um, if he does start. Um, because you know, trying to play through a team with a very low block and a quite you know stodgy plastic park, you know, it can be difficult. And I, I can see why Ange in the past has sort of chosen to go go around that and you know simply change up our tactics a little bit. Um, but no, I would you know between now and the end of the season, the likes of. Haksabanovic, Iwata, Kobayashi, so on, these people who we all think I think could play a, a real part next season and you know look like you know real f- the real future of the team as well. I think you want to now that the pressure's off a little bit, give them slightly more minutes, more opportunities to to prove themselves. Um because you know, I think you want to be be going into the summer with a pretty clear idea of what we have and also what we what we need for a, for an upcoming Champions League campaign and so on. So um, I'd like to see Haxabanovich start, but it would not surprise me if it's if it's Dazmaida again. Yeah, and, and that that's the thing about I'm fine with that. Like you know, I, I, we just really want to finish the season strongly, and I think that you know, Angel make that decision based on training and based on who he thinks. Uh, if Haxabanovich doesn't start, though, I'd like to see him come on because I, I do. I just really enjoy watching him play football. I know that's really maybe counter intuitive to what, how. A lot of people watch football these days, but I just love watching him play. He really, he's really a throwback for me. He's throw, a throwback to a, a time that I grew up and watched those type of Zvonimir Bobans and you know, like um, those specific types of creative midfielder. Um, I mean, he's nothing like Zvonimir Boban. I don't know why I said that Boban was a, a DM, but you know, 
But he's he's technical and bulking and looks like he might smoke 20 fags a day and that's what you want from a creative midfielder. Exactly. Thank you, Callum. You've saved me there and I will be accepting that lifeline. Thank you. Um, will you be watching the game at the CSE or in the house? Or Yeah, we'll be going to, going to the pub for it to, to watch it. Uh, early kickoff. Um, so nothing wild, but a couple of beers. Um be good to sort of take in a game when it's not the badness of a of a Glasgow derby and the place is rammed. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. Um, should hopefully be a nice day. Um, and yeah, just just in general, you, you I find myself getting a little bit frustrated at the minute that there's no Celtic midweek game because you want them to come thick and fast. It's such a it's such an enjoyable brand of football to watch and it's such an enjoyable Celtic side and likeable Celtic side um, that only having one game a week is it can be a little bit frustrating at times so when they do come around every every weekend uh, you're raring to go even if it is you know the league's tied up and it's Kilmarnock away you know an early kick on a Sunday it's not necessarily the most glamorous of ties but you're you know you're still buzzing for it and looking forward to just seeing the Celtic side again. So what you're saying is you just love seeing Chris Boyd right square on your telly screen? That's what gets me up in the morning, Chris. Gets me down at night. We have uh, we have Celtic TV, thankfully, so we're not subjected <laughs> to Chris Boyd. Instead, it's the insane ramblings of Tom Boyd with his tinfoil hat on that increasingly I find myself nodding along and agreeing with. I people give Tom Boyd shit. I agree with every single thing he's ever said, ever, and I'm not even joking. He's greatest. Um, love Tom Boyd. Um, yeah. So, Kamara game is on. Kamara uh, versus Celtic Sunday, 12 p.m. That's the kind of big focus for this weekend. Uh, Celtic FC women take on Glasgow City on Sunday, 10 past four kickoff. That's a huge game. So, uh, Claire Wilde was at the press conference. Uh, she asked some questions. They're on the Celtic uh, women's. Uh, YouTube, uh, they're on Celtics YouTube, the press conference, so check that out. Claire was going to do a little uh, insert for this, but unfortunately she's sick at the moment, so she's up in bed dying, so uh, she didn't have time. Um, tomorrow we've got Desert Island Celtic, which is uh, myself uh, speaking to Barry Gallagher. Barry picks out his top five European away trips, and uh, I tell you what, it's a really enjoyable listen. Barry's always great value, but... Um, yeah, got some really nice memories and some really good stuff, so check that out. That drops tomorrow. I think it drops early. I've put it in for about 10 a.m., so should drop nice and early for you. And on Sunday, we've got the reaction straight after the Kilmarnock game. Myself, Annabelle, and Christopher Sermani. Uh, so we'll uh, break through that game. And uh, next week, we've got the usual stuff. As I say, the live show, um, 26th of April, Blackfriars, uh, three days before the derby, four days before the derby. Second batch of tickets being released. It's on the website. Uh, the website, cynic.co. Go to the writing section, click in there, the link's there, it's on our Twitter, and also, if you can't find it, edit it at thecynic.co, and uh, I'll put you on your way. Um, let's finish up by going to Fact or Fiction. I asked two questions, and you say if they are Fact or Fiction, and why? Question number one, or statement number one, Callum. Celtic will win the rest of the Garby, Derby games this season. So that's the semi-final and the trip to Ibrooks. Um, I'm tempted to go with fiction because in my mind they probably you know go in all battle fever didn't the Ibrox one get a point in a game that we're not too bothered about and convince themselves that you know after the summer it's their time 
Um, you know, I quite, you know, as much as it's frustrating drawing with them, I quite like the little false dawns now and again. Yeah. Um, that usually sets it up perfectly for another scalping in the following season. So I think that's a, that's a potential. I don't think it'll be particularly going nice going there with no away fans at all. Um, but you know, there's these, these games can either go out either way. They can be a bit stodgy. Um, or you know, sometimes you can just rock up with the confidence of champions and run over the top of them. Um, who would they ban if there's no away fans to ban after that? They'd have to look into. You know. They would just go through. They would just go through the list of supporters they have that are registered. The Fenian names <laughs> sounds about right. Aye? So they'd ban. Um, they'd ban so them. I'll go. I'll go with fiction for that. Uh, okay, lovely. Uh, and question number two. There will be a referee strike. Fact or fiction? Uh, I'm going fiction again. They're all talk. Um, I mean, the hard reality of it is, you know, the referee, the referees, you know, top flight anyway, get paid something like a grand a game. Um, I can't see them giving that up for a week or two weeks or, or so on. You know, pure from a purely self-serving standpoint. Uh, I think they'll moan about it. They'll always dangle this threat. Um, the idea they like they're being attacked. Sorry, the idea of Douglas Ross coming out on strike and then asking for people to support the strikers. That would be great. Okay. Um, I'm all for it now. Um, <laughs> Tremendous. But I, I don't see them. I, I, I would. I, part of me, you know, has a real fascination of what it would be like again because I know it's happened once before uh, and I don't really remember what the, the level of officiating was like but it would be interesting to see if there was any significant difference um, if they did go on strike and we brought in foreign referees again which you know I would be all for because uh, the standard of officiating for, for a grander weekend is absolutely shocking uh, in Scottish football across the board um, and I think there is I think that is why they're a bit touchy and sensitive about it so much criticism uh, is because they know that the the standard is bad so they throw throw their toys out the pram uh, and act like they've been unfairly treated when criticism comes their way um, and criticism you know I think the Celtic fans certainly had every right to complain after the referee performance last weekend, um, but have been somewhat usurped by you know the rabbit horns we referred to earlier. They their chart like they get a grand a week. I'll do it for five hundred. How about that? No, I'll undercut you and do it for four fifty. <laughs> Very good. That's why you are the top businessman in Berlin. You just walk yeah. around with your briefcase. And all that. Uh, listen, Callum, it's been an absolute joy as always. Um, thanks for getting involved, and we'll hear from you very soon. Thank you very much for having me, mate. It's been a pleasure. Lovely stuff. Uh, from Callum Gordon, from myself, Chris Gallagher, this has been the weekend update. Um, have a nice weekend, and we'll see you on the reaction. Mm-hmm.